Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Dustin Garrow, Uranium Market Commentator, someone whose opinion we truly appreciate. Today, we're talking to him about House Appropriation Committee decision not to fund the Uranium Reserve in the US. And we see where that sits in the Senate Appropriation Committee as well. Um, we talk to him about Australian juniors. Uh, we look at the Kazatomprom extension to the lockdown and what Cameco's response has been. Um, also, very importantly, what he thinks of the RSA, the Russian suspension agreement, and what the impact of that is going to be. And with all of this, we discuss timing. When are utilities going to come back to the table? Why? And what's that going to do for price? Fascinating conversation. Enjoy the podcast. Dustin Garrow, how are you, sir? Good, Matt. How are you these days? Yeah, not bad. Holding up. Holding up. Did a bit of gardening at the weekend. I can barely move, if I'm honest. You got to fix things up around the house. You do. That's okay. You do. You do. I I get my uh, Saturday morning list uh, of things to do. Do you still get that? Pretty much. Every weekend and even uh, maybe in the afternoon before it rains here in the mountains. Oh, boy. Boy, That's that's a tough list, isn't it? I'm sure, it's, I'm sure it's getting longer. Right, but we won't talk about um, my gardening tips because it'll be a very short conversation. But we will talk about a few things which have gone on in the world of uranium since we last spoke. Um, I think the most current of which was an announcement by the House Appropriations Committee not to, um, uh, well, not, not to fund the Uranium Reserve Fund. So there's 150 million bucks missing there. What was your take on that whole conversation? Perhaps just remind people what, what exactly it involved. Well, again, when uh, the Nuclear Fuel Working Group put the report out in April, uh, part of the, the focus certainly was to you know, revitalize the U.S. uranium industry with a focus on the needs of the Department of Defense for unobligated uranium. Uh, a lot of enthusiasm. The report, I think, was five months late. Um, but they were talking about the $150 million per year um, budget allocation or funding in order to set up a uranium reserve. In other words, the government would step in and, you know, they, they started to define it. They were saying to have at least two uranium mines in operation. Um, the $150 million uh, was in the physical 2021 budget which is now being, let's say, put together by the two, two houses of the Congress. Um, and then there were the next 10 years, another 150 million a year for a planning document. In other words, it wouldn't be approved, but it would be put in the, the, the 10 year forward projection. Now that was to involve like 17 to 19 million pounds of uh, procurement over that period. So close to two million pounds per year. So, you know, that the, the two houses of Congress uh, have their own versions of the budget. They start looking at all the requests, which DOE had put a specific line item for the uranium reserve in, the, in their budget request. But I think it was, uh, you know, a little surprising when they put their, quote, report out, which is basically the results of their review of the proposed budget. And they said, well, you know, we're not going to fund that 150 million because DOE has failed to submit a plan on, well, what does this mean? 
How are you going to do it? You know, how will the contracting be done? Uh, they're, they're also talking that it would be put into the assured fuel area. So then if there's an upset in the market, the utilities could draw on this inventory theoretically. I think that was just to make it a little more attractive. But, you know, after four months, uh, DOE has not put that plan together. And so I think that's what they're saying is 180 days following the enactment of the budget, which may be before October 1st, because again, our fiscal year starts October 1, uh, they're to submit that plan. You know, again, how will this work? How is it going to be authorized? You know, the, the whole gambit of procurement of uranium. Now, if that's true, I mean, they're not saying we will not ever fund this. They're saying we want to see what does it mean? Um, you know, 180 days from late September puts us into next spring. And, and one of the questions then becomes um, if they then decide the plan is acceptable, will there be budget available somewhere? I know within DOE, there's various increases in some of the budgets, you know, would they kind of be able to cobble together the 150 million? Um, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions, Matt. One is, you know, long-term contracts. You, as you know, I can't open my mouth without saying long-term contracts. Um, and the producers have made it clear, a one-year um, purchase, it would have to be like inventory. Um, and then there's no assurance that the program would extend beyond the first year. So how do you go out and, you know, the, the producers are saying it's 12, 24 month ramp up, depends on which type of producer. Because another issue is, uh, do they sign contracts with uh, companies that maybe are in the permitting phase? They don't have existing facilities. Well, four or five years from now when they could maybe have built those facilities that may not have happened so again there's just a lot of unanswered questions but i think the it, to me it was a a bit of a curveball thrown back at the producers after they've been working on this for so long so but wasn't there sort of inevitability about this because we we had the conversation way back when uh, you know during a lot, you know, a lot of this process, and obviously after the report came out, and it was unclear then. And the questions you and I were discussing and answering was, you know, how can these politicians who perhaps don't understand the full cycle, all of the moving parts, possibly put together a coherent plan in that shorter space of time and allocate it to the right place, and you know, and and give guidance as to what they were going to do? They couldn't then. And in four months, were they likely to be able to do enough to get it past the House Appropriations Committee? Well, I think the answer is no. But what, what do you think they should have done? Could they have done better? Keep in mind, there have been meetings between the producers and the government representatives now literally for years. And so it's not like the government wasn't aware of the issues. They, they were aware of the need for multi-year contracts. They'd asked the producers what price levels do you think you would need? You know, so there had been a lot of preliminary work done. But then, as you say, sitting down with the whiteboard and say, OK, how do we get from here to here? I would like to think it could be done fairly quickly. 
But I, I think one of the things that, that was a red flag was back on, I think, May 11th, the director of the Nuclear Energy Department at DOE said, well, within a year, they hope to have that procurement process clearly delineating. Uh, to me, that was, so they're talking well into calendar 2021. And as you know, the producers are really down to bare bones now. I mean, production is, there's some, I think Energy Fuel said they'll produce almost 200,000 pounds this year, which would equal all of the production for the industry last year. But it's alternate feeds. It's, you know, it's not new mind or anything like that. So. Right. Well, let, let's come on to the kind of utility component in, in a second. I just want to stick with the government element here, if I may, just so I can understand it better. Hopefully some of the people at home uh, can understand it a bit better, which is I think there's a sort of superficiality to the way that this has been gone about for the last two years in terms of having been involved with government on this side of the pond. Um, they listen to the headlines, but not necessarily, as you say, the, the whiteboard of how it actually gets done. So th there's a lot there's a lot of that going on here. But one thing that has happened is they have recognized and I think there is an intent to try and do something for the nuclear fuel working cycle, you know, the, the, the whole thing, all the moving parts. But there impossibly lies the problem that they may have got distracted with one or, one or two other shiny objects in the room, such as some of the technology side of things, you know, the, the SMRs or research and development components, and which may seem a little bit more exciting, but in reality are also quite small widgets in, in the mix here. So do you, yeah. do you think there's been a little bit of that? Yeah, I think, you know, the uh, the conference call that was at the end of May, where the Secretary of Energy participated. So, I mean, it had all the right people, had the policy people. Um, you know, they made comments about the need, the DOD needed abundant uranium supplies in the future. And, you know, we're going to be immediately working on this. But then they kind of got off on, as you say, the research side, the SMRs, and certainly the funding side for export reactors. They've recognized um, that Russia and China are utilizing the export reactor market, maybe for geopolitical reasons. And well, one of the problems with the US is we couldn't fund our reactor sales outside the United States. So I think they're diligently working on getting that changed, which would then allow GE and Westinghouse to, I think, as they said, penetrate the export reactor market. Um, a lot of challenges, uh, as you point out, and the Chinese and Russians have been at this now for years and years. And, you know, they offer not only the, the units, but the financing with extended uh, repayment terms, if you want to call it that. I don't know what the U.S. financing would look like. And things like fuel. They say, we'll bring the fuel, we'll, you know, oversee operations, and then we'll take spent fuel away. Uh, I'm not sure the U.S. reactor vendors will be able to offer that. So they're going to be at a pretty noticeable disadvantage. And again, maybe just the economics. If I'm the Russians and the Chinese, I say, okay, I'll just undercut their price. So, you know, it, well, the, I think that's like really good. I mean, that's a really important point, which should not be missed by anyone watching this is the one, it's a small market Two, the, the, the two powerhouses at the moment are the Russian government and the Chinese government. 
And the US is trying to compete with two very large companies, but they are companies with their own restrictions. They've got other things which they're they're probably focused on as well. Uh, And and the cost of money to them would would perhaps make things less attractive. So these barriers to entry, I don't really sort of see why GE or Westinghouse would want to come in and compete in this space. And it comes back to something you and I talked about some three months ago, which was do politicians and, and commercial enterprise do they work do they do they work in the US? Is, you know, the wishes of a politician uh, does that does it matter what they wish for? Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not again, as you say, I'm, I'm not overly optimistic this whole project would work very well because it is the Russian and the Chinese governments and they have other parts of their agenda of which the nuclear reactors are just one component. And so I think that, yeah, it's a nice idea, but I'm not sure how it, and maybe they'll say, well, it'll be SMRs. Well, those are a ways off. So I think it, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But what I find a little bit ironic is the whole nuclear fuel working group uh, concept kind of was triggered by the 232 which the two uranium producers, Energy Fuels and Your Energy, initiated in January of 18. So we're two and a half years later, and it's all of a sudden they've not been steamrolled, but they've kind of been lost in the, in the discussions with these things like export reactors and on and on and on to where that they're not getting a, what I can see at this point, not a lot of attention. Uh, to get what they need done. So. And it, well, that's what I meant. I th- it feels like a Pandora's box situation where they've kind of opened the lid and then everything is spilled out of it. Uh, or, you know, if, you, if you, you start looking for other things that you can do. It's, it, we said again, months ago, it's a really big fix. And these big fixes take a lot of planning, yeah. effort, time, etc. And I just think it was unrealistic to expect this. But it's been a bit of a shock to, I guess, yeah. uranium... Um, uh, genius uh, that you know has appropriations committee has so quickly shut this down. Um, is there any hope in here? What, what about the Senate appropriations? What are they doing? Well, you know, again, I, I I'm not directly involved in all this, but I think there continues to be optimism that the Senate version of the appropriations bill I was told recently continues to have the 150 million in it, and I think they'll get together for eventual markup, and maybe it gets retained. Uh, again, Senator Barrasso has been very, uh, very supportive from Wyoming. Um, that was always a problem, though, even when Dominici was involved. Um, smaller state, not a lot of uh, political clout. You know, it's not like the big, the big states are weighing in here. It, it's not an issue that they, they view, I guess, as that that important. I mean, uranium in Wyoming is a pretty critical part of their economy. So, yeah, but but as with all things uh, political, there are you've been, you know, you've got all sorts of um, groups um, yeah, who so. are vying for capital, and you know, you, you think you're the most important person in the room, but isn't necessarily always, always the case. Not always the case. Yeah. Well, then it must come back down to let's move to move away from the political political and government. Um, although that's quite a big topic, I'd love to spend more time on, uh, and talk about market forces, okay, which, which, and by that I mean, I'm not talking supply demand, I'm talking about utilities. We've got a couple of big factors there. You've got a US election, uh, 
and you've got the RSA uh, agreement still still not settled, and those things aren't probably in any likelihood um, likely to be agreed or decided on by the until the end of the year. So, in either order, as you were, what do you think is most <laughs> important to utilities? Oh well, I think right now the the election is the election. Apparently, uh, Mr. Biden's green new green plan has a nod toward nuclear. So it doesn't sound like that it'll be, oh, well, let's shut down all the plants. And the other thing, Matt, and you've seen, I'm sure, is reshoring. I just, there's a big article this morning or editorial in the Wall Street Journal about it. Bring back manufacturing to the United States. And that's part of the Biden platform, as well as it's been Trump since day one. So in order to do that, you need power. So I guess there'll be a less of an emphasis on let's get rid of not only coal, I mean, which is, you know, we think nuclear struggles a bit in the U.S. where coal is almost in the dumper. Um, but, yeah, I think though. So, you know, I think the utilities are probably not as focused on the election side as the Russian suspension agreement, because I'm hearing that there is a broad spectrum of opinions um, the utilities through AHUG, the Ad Hoc Utility Committee, are pushing really hard uh, to have it uh, expire, basically, to where they, the Russians, which was the intent that by the end of 2020, which when the amendment was put in place was a long way off. And the long way off tends to eventually show up at your door. And, uh, you know, now they're debating, uh, there's been uh, legislation drafted that would, you know, lower the limits. And um, and I think the big thing, though, that happened there was the Department of Commerce back in middle of June put out a report and basically said it was to review the compliance of 10X and um, the now, you know, Centrex, former USEC, um, their compliance with kind of the procedures. And I think they were found to be in compliance. Yeah, they they shuffled the right pieces of paper around. But they concluded that, uh, and it's kind of interesting, gets back to long-term contracts, um, there have been enrichment contracts being done for delivery post the, uh, December of 2020 because they signed long-term enrichment contracts. And they say those have been price suppressive. So basically, commerce took the position that unless uh, the the Russians are, are more uh, um, more aware of the effect they're having on the market, let's put it that way, um, they said we should terminate the the agreement and reinstate the underlying anti-dumping investigation, which is from you know back in the 90s, which would then put very high tariffs on Russian enrichment. So let's just say there's a whole, and I've also heard that the Russians may say, hey, at 20% of the US, that's about 3 million SWU a year. The global demand is like 52, 53 million. This is a very small part of the global enrichment market. Do we really want to put up with more, another 10, 15 years of paperwork and auditing and on and on or maybe they'll just say hey okay have at it you guys keep us out of the market buy from you 
you know, the Western enrichers at probably higher prices um, and we'll go and sell somewhere else. So, I mean, again, I've heard everything from, you know, well, extension of the existing mm -hmm. agreement down to modifying it to, uh, you know, all over the place. See, that was literally my next question. Why the heck should the Russians care? It's like nothing. It's nothing in dollar terms. You know, so, so why, well, I why think bother? it was just the, the ability to penetrate the market. In other words, they've been held at that 20% level now for the last few years, and that was to go away. And they said, we want 30 or 40%, apparently publicly, of the U.S. market. Well, then all of a sudden, you know, 40% uh, of 15 million SWU, you know, 6 million, then it starts to get to be... But with, this, with, with, with the rest of the world opening up and developing and nuclear becoming yeah. such a big thing, the, the, the market's much bigger than, you know, back in the 1990s. Uh, there's more, more buyers. Um, it gets to the point, well, why, why fight this battle? Why bother um, and let the market forces decide? Right when we're having a very anti-Russian kind of in, you know, view in the, in the government here, as well as certainly anti-Chinese. So I think that, it, you know, they'll look at all that and go, at some point we'll walk. So I, I would, but we just, that the point is the utilities to get back to them. Some of them have contracted forward for apparently more than the 20% in anticipation of that going away, the limit. So they're then in a bit of a difficult position where say, as an individual utility, maybe you've committed to 40% of your enrichment from the Russians. Well, what if that goes to zero? Then you've got to get in the queue with Yurenko and Orano, basically, are the Western SWU providers. And I, you know, if I'm a marketer at Yurenko, I probably am not going to sell at a very low SWU price, particularly for new long-term contracts. So again, it, it just adds. So then when people say, well, why aren't they looking at uranium? Well, they've got, you know, the, the SWU situation is really much more uh, urgent, potentially. So, so let's, let's look at a few things, a few data points here, okay? Because um, people like um, um, UXC, Trade Tag, people like that, they've been putting out numbers every year that gives a sense of where the utilities are like, uh, where the utilities are at with their inventory levels. Um, you know, the US did it about a month ago. Europeans have put out a sort of summary report. They're fine for two and a half, three years, all of them. So the, the utilities are in no rush to buy. At some point they will be, but do you feel they're in any rush to buy? Is it just, oh, let's just sort of see where the RSA gets to and then we'll start making some decisions? Or actually, do they have a little bit more time on their hands? Well, I think, you know, like everyone, they put it, they have a list. And, and here is my to-do list. And up top is Russian SWU. And maybe in the middle somewhere is term uranium contracts. Who knows? So again, that they've got somewhat limited staffing. I mean, the, the, the uh, utility fuel groups are smaller than they were in the past. So they say, well, and this is more immediate. I can't just let this slide, the Russian SWU issue, but I can on uranium. And I think what they're doing is they're hearing from Cameco, probably from Kazatomprom, maybe from Uranium One. And as you've uh, probably seen, some of the 
smaller producers, Paladin made it clear that they're going to be out talking term contracts, Vimy, you know, a number of them. So they're beginning to hear from a number of supply sources of, of uranium. So I think all, you know, next gen, I mean, you throw everybody in the pot and they go, well, there, there's diverse sources. There's, you know, we can debate uh, when those sources are available. But I, so I think, you know, if you're a fuel manager, you go, hey, I can push that off until probably next year, but I can't push off the Russian suspension agreement. I have to focus on that because management is going to be called, you know, every morning my phone's going to ring from upstairs. And, you know, so that's what I have to focus on. I mean, they're not ignoring it totally, but again, I think they're less concerned, like you say, they've got inventories. They don't tend to hold inventories of enrichment because it's expensive as you get further down the fuel cycle. So yeah, U308, UF6, we've got, as you say, you know, next two, three years, the Europeans are pretty well covered to the mid 2020s, but I see by around 25, 26, their coverage starts to drop off significantly. But it's like, well, it's over the horizon a bit. So, you know, I'll focus on the immediate. So, I mean, the things that are happening in the market, obviously, we've heard a lot about Kazakhstan, the lockdown there, it's affecting mm-hmm. Kazatom Prom. Um, they're on the show a week, week or just over a week ago, and they're saying that, you know, they may have to come into the market. Cameco said we may have to come into the market to top things up, right, to, to fulfill our contracts. Um, and they can do that to the end of this year. So there's a kind of another end of year moment. Um, what happens next year? What happens in Q1 and Q2 for these companies? There's not enough well, I think, inventory in the market, is there? Well, like they said, uh, I think UX said recently that uh, during uh, March, April, when there was, what, 36 million pounds transacted, the, uh, the more mobile, lower-priced inventory was taken out of the market. And I think that's what we're seeing now. The volumes are, are down a bit, certainly. The price is kind of held relatively stable so to me that's a positive sign that all of a sudden the price didn't go 34 32 30 you know dropping like the proverbial rock um and the other is the startups people think like cigar well they'd say okay we're gonna start up cigar they flip a switch in saskatoon everybody's there the mine you know it's gonna take months and months and months and even in uh, Kazakhstan, it was interesting, the, the, uh, the head of Kazatom Prom was interviewed by the local newspaper, Kazakhstan Pravda, which I thought was interesting. Um, and he said, you know, keep in mind, we've stopped all well-field development. Our production is coming from existing well-fields. So they, I mean, when they say it's safe to go out and start ramping up, they have to start drilling wells I mean, it's going to take, so when you say, you know, end of the year is at a magic date, and then all of a sudden, every, you know, January 2nd, everything is back to normal. I think we're well into the middle of next year, even if the ramp up starts before the end of this year, till we're kind of back to some semblance of normal in the production side. And that's probably optimistic. That's the production so, side. But to get people at Cameco, Kazatomprom and elsewhere to press the go button, they need 
these long-term oh. contracts. Now I'm saying it, long-term oh. contracts. Um, so, so I know, I know, I'm a convert. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so again, what does that mean? When does that happen? Mean? Yeah. yeah, when does that need to happen? Well, and when do you think it will I happen? Think, to some degree, I think the restart of Cigar is not totally independent of that, but more so than MacArthur. And we don't even hear MacArthur anymore. It's like the, you know, he whose name we shall not, you know, whatever. It's just sitting there on idle, slow idle off in the background. Um, but yeah, it's the term contracts. Paladin came out with their restart, you know, page after page, kind of the technical operational side. And then it said, and oh, by the way, this is all contingent on sufficient priced quantity wise term contracts. So, you know, when do they start doing that? I mean, I could see, the, again, as, you, as we've talked, there's a phase. We get Cameco and the, maybe Kaz Adam Prom. They're satisfied. They move aside. The next group comes in. Um, we could be well into 2022 before some of the, particularly the newer producers, because utilities say, wait a minute. Again, we've talked about the size of the, the contracts each year. And if you're a new producer and, you know, you need to go get the financing, turn dirt, build this, do that, they'll say, well, you know, we'll take a chance, but we're not going to sign for half a million pounds. So there's that ramp up uh, that, that they're going to need. I think it could be a long march for some of, even if they're relatively close to being shovel ready. No, I get that. I agree with you. I'm in violent agreement with you and have been for several months over how long it's going to take some of these juniors to be in a position where they can get financed and let alone yes. the process of getting into building a uh, producing mine and all of the other issues. But what does it mean for the big boys? What does it mean for the Kazatom proms who tell me that they're always contracting? What does it mean for the Kamikos of this world um, in terms of having those conversations if, and Paladin, I guess, if they're setting a price, which is, you know, mid 50s, 60s, mid, mid 60s, who knows? Um, you wouldn't want to be the uh, utility bar that goes first when everyone else around you is buying in the mid 30s or 40s. You've got pressed the button at 55. That's a kind of difficult scenario, isn't it? And it has been. You know, again, I think it, uh, you know, having talked to several of the fuel managers, it depends on what their coverage is, what their risk tolerance is, you know, uh, how diverse do they want their supply to be? Because let's face it, the, uh, right now, the, the reliable long-term suppliers that have a proven record, that's a pretty short list. So you, you kind of have to put them in your, your portfolio and then say, okay, then as I get further, uh, you know, up the curve, who do I who do I contract with? It's going to deliver. You know, the as we've talked, the utilities don't care too much about your share price, your whatever. They need yellow cake in a can. The rest of it's all interesting. So then they start looking at can these guys get this done? You know, look at the risks now in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, there was just a big article I read somewhere that. You know, this isn't, you know, the, the easiest place to work. Not to say Najir, they can't move forward, but it's just another factor I think the utilities have to take into account. So, you know, you start whittling down that list and 
And yeah, who steps out and signs that first $50? I think we're close. I think some of the discussions are in the mid 40s. They're not below 40. I mean, I think, I, you know, looking at the trade tech production cost indicator number at 44, that's probably not a bad number, particularly for restarts. But so is it, but of, is it enough for the paladins of this world? It'd be, you know, I think, you know, well, you cast out some proms, Cameco's fine because they're, they're low cost producers, but for everyone else. And, and, and looking at the market, you know, I do advise some other production companies. Um, there is that first tier of the Cameco's and the Kazat and Proms that will eat, eat their fill. And then it's the next tier. And who's in that tier? Well, and I, you know, we could name the five or six companies that either have care and maintenance or close to, you know, hopefully moving forward with financing. And then there's the next tier. So, but as a utility, do you want to be the first guy at 50 or the last guy at 70? You know, you've got to, but, but, that, but, but that's the, why they, mm. that's why they stampede. If we were to see the price go from reportedly 38 to 45 to 50, they'll go, uh oh, I better get out there. But there's the kind of threshold. So, well, I'm interested in how the math works because your tier ones collectively, collectively your tier ones probably produce 60% of the market, right? Yeah. Right? So that, that's, that's a big number. There's also a very big number that's not being supplied. So your tier twos who need more than your mid 40s are going to need to be incentivized. And then even they can't fulfill 100% of the market. So some of the tier threes, like the nearer term or potential nearer term producers, are going to need to be incentivized. So there's a, it's a very, must be a very quick run to that price discovery to allow the tier threes to actually get into some, well, at least be able to get funded to be able to get into uh, building, the, uh, building their mind, to be able to get into production, et cetera. So it, it, it's, it's, I think that's the interesting bit. I can see why Cameco and, and Kazaton Prime might go early. They might say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll contract some of this out at mid-40s because they're making a lot of money at that rate, more than most um, would at 65. So in the tier twos, I can see why they would maybe want 55 or 60. That's what they're telling us. So what, yes. what does that time frame look like? I mean, how do we, how do we work out what we're looking the at? The other, here? there's a, a presumption that the utilities just start filling up their portfolios to 100% of what they need. That isn't going to be the case. They'll get up and maybe they'll swallow hard and sign that $60 final contract. And it leaves somewhat of a gap. And they go, you know, I'll take the risk. I mean, I, I think there's going to be enough production. These guys are going to come on. So I'm going to not fill my book up out in the future. In other words, I'm okay like they are today. Two, three years, then it's a bit lower coverage. And then, you know, so again, all of that needs to be taken into account when one looks at how do you put together your term contracts. So, yeah, it's not just going to be one day everybody's ready to sign 100% of their needs for the next 20 years doesn't work that way. So, no, I, th I think I think it's that's a, that's a fascinating. It'll be a fascinating and very um, accelerated time frame. But I don't know when it's when it starts. I know when it starts. It's going to be good, very exciting. But I don't know when it starts. Do you? It's always about timing. Well, I mean, as you know, early this year, pr prior to COVID nineteen, 
this year looked like a year that the U.S. utilities were going to become quite a bit more active. So, I mean, people thought, well, then now fourth quarter. Well, it sounds like, you know, we're already middle of July. So is it fourth quarter? Do they just go, you know, this has been a horrible year. I'm going to work in the garden and I'll come out, you know, next year. No conferences. I mean, the only one that's still hanging by its claws is Las Vegas, end of October. And I'm hearing the utilities are going, no, you know, if you have a one day deal, maybe in Washington, maybe I'll come to it. So I think it's really at risk. So then you're into well into next year before there's even a chance to where the, the industry gets together. As you know, you just participated in a virtual conference and those are fine in the interim, but it doesn't, you know. It's not the same. So what do you, so, what do you, so when, would the, when is that scheduled for, Las Vegas? It's like right at the end of October, the 28th, 29th, something like that. It's the NEI. Oh, right. So the last, yeah. last of the year kind of thing. So. so, and you're saying that's 2021, just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, no, this year. This year. So, okay. So we gotcha, get into gotcha. 2021 right. and, you know, you're in the spring before the, the, the combined WNA-NEI conference, kind of April, I think. So, you know, mm. we're probably nine more months before the industry, quote, gets together if they do it then. And, why, and just remind people why that's important. Why, why can't they be picking up the phones to each other between now and then? Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, crucial, but it kind of is the place where the, you know, as they say, the coffee talk and the lunches and the, you know, uh, very few people are traveling to visit the utilities now. I think certainly Cameco must be, probably Kazat and Prom. But, you know, to get on a plane and, you know, and some of them don't have, say, U.S.-based representation. You know, Paladin's representative is in the, the U.K., so you got to come across the Atlantic to meet with the utilities, and so we'll just have to see. But none of it suggests a rapid ramp-up in term contracts. Now, I mean, we can have more people mm -hmm. in the market, but it's still going to take a while. So. That, that's interesting. It's kind of in line with certainly where our conclusions have um, no. finished up and we're thinking it's possibly Q3 next year as, as late as Well, that. and as Grant, as Grant Isaac of Cameco said on their last call, things have started to slow down. And he said, well, the market's strengthening. So that's in their favor. So that's okay. It's, so then you've got, again, the first, the, the, the lower quartile guys yeah. are, you know. Well, like I say, it, are, comes, it comes back to if you don't have the cash, you're going to struggle if you don't have the ability to have a meaningful conversation with the utilities when they are ready to have it whether it be you know say april may next year um you're in trouble and if you don't know what you're talking about when you do talk to them i think you're in trouble um and if you've never produced before i think you're in a lot of trouble so it, it's uh it's interesting interesting time for some of the juniors who've been getting little bits of money yeah. in here and here and there but perhaps um that may not be enough but I keep I keep beating that drum because it it, seem, it seems apparent to me, but um, perhaps I'm wrong. And the other and the other thing, Matt, and I think we've talked about it, you've got to be ready when the utilities come in the term market because they sign these, you know, it, it covers their needs out maybe five, six, seven years. You don't start for a couple base of a maybe three, four years, whatever. If you're not there, you're not at the table. 
they don't come out every year and do that. They tend to cover and then they go off and do other things. Yeah. So, you know, they do their long-term contracting and then it might be two, three, four years before they're back in the market. Okay, last question, last question. Sorry. Are you ready for this? You, um, I know you advise a few companies. Um, are you at all nervous about some of these Australian companies coming and buying assets in uh, Canada and the US? Well, I thought it was, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. We're seeing a, a rush into the US market, um, you know, by at least four or five uh, juniors out of uh, Australia. Mm. And they're, they're looking, they're doing due diligence on properties and deposits, primarily in the Colorado Plateau. So it's Colorado, Utah, and it's traditional hard rock, um, with uh, all of them saying they want a toll process at the one remaining operating mill, which is White Mesa. And oh, we also want to participate in the uranium reserve program. So apparently they've had a really nice run up in their share prices and, and caught, I think some of the US guys maybe a little um, on their back foot a bit. And it's like, oh, well, you know, We'll see what happens. But I've been surprised how many of them are, you know, are, are around Utah, Colorado, looking at, at properties. And I think they, know, why not? I think why, yeah, why not? they're cheap. So. Why not? If you can do it. Do it. But um, I think the, the questions we've been asking ourselves is what are they buying? So what are the assets? Because they'll have been around yeah. for a long time. There'll be some data on them. And yet no one else has, has deigned them important enough to pick up. Um, it's come from a you know, they're, they're Australian going to the US. And is this just a promote story back home? Um, or have these companies got a realistic chance of actually building mines? Yeah, well, keep in mind, you know, we have, I guess, a, probably a derogatory term that's mostly in the coal industry, the dog hole. Um, and, and I think that's what they're looking at. None of these mines, I mean, they've been around, like you say, back in the 50s and 60s, they were part of the ore buying for whatever. And so you go in and you dust them off, you're never going to produce more than a couple hundred thousand pounds. That's why, say, an energy fuels has always had to kind of cobble together a number of mines in the Colorado Plateau. It isn't one, one big underground mine, you know, Cigar Lake, that they're producing, you know, millions and millions of pounds. You've got to have a bunch of little mines operating um, in order to get the volume up. So if you come in and get two or three of these things, you know, you're, you're, I'm not sure the economics of it. How do you set up a U.S. subsidiary to oversee your, you know, fairly minor holdings in the United States? And maybe they come and go, you know, they come in, they look, yeah, okay, take it over, pay a little bit. And two, three years from now, you know, White Mesa is processing rare earths and, there's yeah, no I mean, place to go. Well, let me let me ask you about that. I mean, White Mesa is obviously a huge facility and it's owned by Energy Fuels. And I think we're speaking to the CEO, Mark Chalmers, on Wednesday this week, later this week anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, rare earths, it's a fairly up and down, fairly erratic sector, extremely high margin if you time it right and if you, you, you capture a lot of the value. Um, yeah. What do you think of that move by them? Well, I mean, stepping back, they're waiting and waiting on the uranium market, be it the government, be it the, the fundamentals, be it. And I think to say, hey, 
we've got this facility and it's in good condition. And if we can process the rare earths, which are now front burner in the U.S., then why not? Now, do they then turn their back on uranium? I don't think so. But it's, hey, let's, we're not just going to sit there and, you know, go down the road and atrophy down and shut the lights off. It's, well, let's, you know, rare earths are now. That mill is unbelievable. I've dealt with it since, basically since it was built a little after. Then they've used it, as you know, up and down and Arizona, high grade ore, Colorado Plateau, alternate feeds. I mean, that they've really looked at it as a flexible processing facility. And I think it's, well, thank God they have, because there would be no operating mills left. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's an interesting one. We've looked at it, and I think what people kind of think of when they hear the word mill is, you know, some old dusty uh, thing in, in, in the middle of the desert somewhere. But th this has got a very uh, high-tech lab associated with it. You've got radioactive material going through there, so it's, it's a fairly sophisticated thing. And, yeah, it can yeah. be upgraded and updated, and it's got 17 lines and so forth. So I think it has a lot of potential. I, I think... One of the other amusing things to me is the number of CEOs who come on the show and say, we're putting all our stuff through White Mesa Mill. But according, yeah. acor according to the CEO, that's news to him. Yeah, usually. Usually. So you go, well, good, you know, kind of good luck. I'll, ha I'll, I'll have to let Mark know on Wednesday. There's some good news. Got all these companies going to feed through. <laughs> yes, uh, that's right. Yeah. I think he's already aware of it. But is he? Okay. He's he's aware of us and he's aware of the conversations, or he's or he's signed contracts. Well, I mean, you, you know, they all put it out that if you read their literature, their PowerPoint slides, it's well, we're 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 a hundred kilometers from the only licensed mill, and they do toll milling. Well, they don't do a, a lot of toll milling. So, are, are any contracts signed? Do people actually have uh, agreements in place? Um, no, I can't imagine that they've had some toll milling agreements, but they've most I think have all expired. Okay. So because they never got the mines operating to do the toll milling. So I'll ask him. I'll ask him later this week. Yeah. Hey, well, I'm Dustin. Thanks so much. What a run through. Uh, as ever, crazy, crazy market. It's going to make a great movie or film one day. Uh, so yep. maybe we're one of these one days. Day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It won't be me writing it. Uh, thank you again. We'll speak to you again soon. I'm sure there's be more news next week or the week after. That's right. We've got to keep, keep it we going. We get out of the summer. We'll see. That's right. Well, stay safe. Okay, Matt. Thank you so much. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.